Thank you for downloading this episode. Before we start, I wanted to let you know that our interviews with leaders of TTOs and University Venture Funds are now on their own feed, with new episodes every Friday. Interviews with people like Matt Perkins from Oxford University Innovation, Sarah Valin from Chalmers Ventures, or Kirsten Leuter from Osage University Partners. Just search for Talking Tech Transfer in your podcast app or go to globaluniversityventuring.com to subscribe. Welcome to the Global Venturing Review Leadership Series, where we talk to thought leaders from corporate and university venturing to find out more about how they are changing the world. In today's episode, I, Thierry Hillis, talk to Leslie Miller-Nicholson, Director of the Technology Licensing Office at MIT. If you'd like to hear more from Leslie, you can buy a ticket to our Digital Forum 2.0 on September 29th, where she'll join me for a roundtable also featuring Kirsten Leuter from Osage University Partners and Helen McBreen from Atlantic Bridge, among many others. Buy a ticket before September 20th and get a 20% discount. Just head to gcvdigitalforum.com, that is gcvdigitalforum.com. And now, let's talk to Leslie. Leslie Miller-Nicholson, thank you very much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. To start with, uh, maybe you can give us a quick outline and some headline figures, maybe, of MIT TLO's work. Uh, certainly. And thank you again for inviting me to, to talk to you today. The MIT's Tech Transfer Office is one of the oldest uh, te- technology transfer offices in the, United, in the United States, maybe the world. And we have at our disposal many, many faculty who are highly innovative and therefore our, our workload is extraordinarily high, particularly in comparison to some other universities. And just to give you an example of that, the office itself is staffed by about 48 people ranging in, in areas of finance, um, patents, uh, obviously inventions, licensing, marketing, federal compliance and the like. Last year, in total, we received 864 inventions, which is the highest number we have received in our lifetime. Uh, we have a portfolio. Wow. <laughs> yeah, pretty big. We have a portfolio of 11,000, uh, over 11,000 issued or pending US and foreign patents. And just last year, we had 432 issued, which again is a high. And we exceeded our targets, uh, That not that we have targets, but in our licenses and options and had over 100. 50 of those executed in, in, in the last fiscal year, which ended at the end of June. And we saw out of those, 32 startup companies formed, which has been trending that way for the last couple of years. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that's certainly some, some big figures. 32, is, I don't know if that makes you one of the, the highest in the US as well for that, or certainly near the top, if, if not even globally. Yeah, I think there are a few people who have got really robust infrastructures, and I have to say this is a this is a function of the community in which we reside, the Boston area, the New England area, the accessibility to capital, to mentors, to other companies, and frankly, the highly innovative nature of our faculty and staff. And you know, with forty eight staff, we we actually struggle to keep up with the work that we have. It's one of our, you know, if there's anything I'd say that we that, that hurdles to overcome is actually doing justice to all of the innovations out there. And as you can tell from the size of the portfolio, that's, uh, you know, a small company's size of portfolio as opposed to uh, a university's portfolio that probably 
people range in the you know 10 to 15 or 20 US, US patents being issued each year, but we're adding for over 400 each year. And we have to do justice to those. 80% of our inventions approximately are funded by the federal government. So we have compliance with regard to their, you know, their need to see us getting those technologies into the marketplace. I, um, it, it doesn't sound like the pandemic has affected your work, but has it? Um, how has it changed at MIT? Well, uh, we were able, uh, because we had an infrastructure for remote working, to pivot very quickly, literally over a weekend, to, to, to working from home, which I am very thankful for everybody's uh, resilience in doing that, as I'm sure many other industries and universities are. What we've seen is that email traffic has increased extraordinarily. Our accessibility, though, to faculty and others that we need to get in touch with over the last six months has, I'll say, improved. Um, obviously, they now have on their hands the, the, the need to pivot to online platforms for, for teaching. But our, if, if anything, our work has increased. And, uh, you know, in the, in the space of your own home, depending on your environment, that makes it either, you know, harder or easier, depending. So it's been a, it's been a journey, shall we say. We've tried to keep on top of things to make sure that everybody is thriving in their environment and if not thriving, surviving, uh, because that first and foremost was our most important thing to make sure our staff were okay in what they were doing. But the work did not stop. And in fact, as you can see from some of the numbers, actually in the last quarter, which was March through June, we saw our highest numbers of inventions and activity. Wow. The one company that I saw come out of MIT recently was PathCheck, uh, which is working on uh, public health solutions that are open, interoperable, and uh, privacy-preserving. What struck me as unusual about that one was that it's a charitable organization. I think it's a 501c3, it's called in the US. And obviously, some universities are, are exploring other types of spin-outs, such as social enterprises. Is this something that you could see happen more in the future, particularly in the age of a pandemic? So it's a really interesting that you bring that up because uh, for a number of months, uh, first I'll say that that often our, our the desire for spin-outs obviously comes from the faculty's interest in in getting either a technology to market or a mechanism by which to engage others in getting a technology to market. So this was really a community effort, and to the extent that the TLO and the Office of General Counsel enabled that to happen through the agreements that were struck, all of the technology behind this, or most of the technology behind this, is open source. And so I think one of the unique things about MIT is that you will see technologies go to market in very different ways, some of which are licensed through our office, some of which are going out through the open source mechanism, and some of which uh, don't need to be licensed in any way because it effectively is a function of a faculty member's intellectual interests and they just want to use their expertise and partner with others. And so in our, I'll say in the MIT world, you see many companies claiming, and, and quite frankly, they are affiliated to MIT in some way, but it doesn't necessarily mean they have licensed IP per se. So to answer your question, we see, we've seen this before, and I think we will see more of it, but even some of the examples of how faculty and students responded to the pandemic with their desire to use their skill skills and technology to assist in the prevention or diagnosis or treatment of COVID-19, we've already seen some of that occurring. We've seen Event, which was the open source eVentilator, which had been created through a student program back at, you know, 10 years ago. 
We've seen the effort that was also done in, in Columbia and Illinois for face shields. And, and we did the same at MIT where we enabled manufacturers to quickly do these disposable face shields. So MIT is a, you know, have at it place. And I think what we try to do is make sure that we have the tools and vehicles, shall we say, to enable those technologies or ideas or whatever it is to get into the marketplace. But it doesn't always center around the licensing of this, you know, Office of General Counsel or other parties might be involved if it's obviously just a, but a collaboration agreement or a less, um, you know, there's no intellectual property or it's just about making sure we have an agreement in place to be clear about this is not MIT and this is how you use a name, but it is of MIT, shall we say. And in addition to being responsible for the Tech Transfer Office, you are also the director of Catalysts in the Office of Strategic Alliances and Technology Transfer. Can you tell me a bit about that as well? Certainly. So again, MIT is a place where you usually get more than one job. And, and, and I joined that troupe last uh, September. Over the course of a year before that, a lot of work was done to try and identify ways in which we could improve and enhance the way in which we engage with corporate entities and others who want to sponsor research or engage with MIT, anything from regular sponsored research to capacity building to different sorts of engagements. And so this team was created, which we're calling OSAT Middle, and OSAT is the Office of Strategic Alliances and Tech Transfer, which we affectionately call OSAT. OSAT basically has under it the licensing office of which I'm director, and my colleague Carl Coster also manages the Office of Corporate Relations, which is the industry liaison program. And then he added three groups, catalysts, strategic transactions officers, and alliance managers. And that group of three effectively assist faculty in the process of engagement with entities who want to engage with MIT and their lab and sponsor research and move it through the cycle of what is it you want to do, are our expectations and needs aligned, transacting the the agreement through negotiation with the transactions officers, and then if it's a big enough or complex enough agreement, also allocating alliance managers or identifying ways in which it can be managed to, to, uh, to, you know, moving forward. The catalysts are my team. I have four of them, fabulous people, PhD backgrounds, engaged previously either in uh, universities or industries. And they basically are people who sit down with faculty to take them through that journey. And it's been a tremendous learning opportunity for me, having come from the tech transfer side of things, to really dig into the different ways that we can construct complex strategic engagements And it is, I mean, we consider this a small startup in a very large organization. So obviously, we're dealing with all the tensions that come with that sort of um, creation of a new entity. Amazing. Sounds fascinating, though. I uh, I look forward to hearing more as, uh, as I think you said, a year ago or something, you you started that. So it's, yeah, early days still. Uh, Early days, indeed. This is my favorite question, and and, and it's the one that interviewees hate the most. Um, Can you can you give me an example of some cool technologies or spin-outs that you've seen emerge from MIT? I know it's impossible to pick sp- uh, favorites, but perhaps a personal one rather than yeah. a director favorite. <laughs> so you're right. I can understand. I'm glad other uh, interviewees have, have felt the same. It was like, oh, that's so unfair. <laughs> How can I pick one? And, you know, pick one, everybody else is going to go, well, what about me? Well, you know, two came to mind immediately. One is just because it's cool. I mean, you said, you know, aligned with my personal interests. Well, those are very so. 
I won't go there, but there's one company which I'm sure everybody will agree. And one of the most frustrating things that you have is when, you know, that ketchup bottle, you can't get the ketchup out of it at the end or, you know, the last thing in the jar. And you're like, I really want to get to that. It's called Liquiglide and it's, it uses a coating and I'm not a technical person, so I can't tell you how, but it has a film that can go in you know, a ketchup bottle to ensure that you get every last drop of your ketchup or your mayonnaise or, or whatever. And I just think that's such a cool thing because so many people early, in my early days would say, can't you find a way in which to, or, you know, do you see things at, and here we have it at MIT, a startup spin out that uh, called Liquid Light that has done exactly that. So that's one. And then the second one is just, and this is something I'm sure now with everybody with headsets on is going to appreciate more and more. And as we get older, we lose our hearing. It's called Frequency Therapeutics. And it is a, a company that it, it, it's, uh, I think, lead project is working in regeneration of hair cells in your ear. Because basically, as you, as you have hearing loss, as you age, it is the fact that you are losing those hair cells and they are not regrowing. And so I just think it's so cool. And as I you know, look at my parents and others who are like losing their hearing just because of age, and then I look at youth of today who've got their headphones on and now we're sitting with headphones on is that the chances of us all suffering this a little sooner is probably high so I'm hoping that everything that uh, frequency is doing in uh, bringing that technology to market is 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 going to be uh, useful for everybody that is amazing I think I am a prime candidate for uh, for hearing loss because my parents are, uh, are both suffering from it but the ketchup bottle is kind of amazing that's I think that's that's why I like asking this question because it brings it usually brings out the like the very weird stuff that you would have never thought about. And I, I don't think I've ever looked at a ketchup bottle and thought a university will solve this problem. Right. And I will, just to clarify, I don't know if they've got any deal with whoever does ketchup, but that is the concept of that the film can actually get, you know, get the last drop out of. And I'm sure there's many, many other applications that would be useful for that. But that's, a, that's the best way to describe it. That's what it does. So. I imagine there's there's applications in life sciences and in industrial applications as well for that, not just the um, the ketchup bottle. But yeah, it's it sounds amazing. Yeah, well, and if I can just ad lib here a little, I said I wouldn't, but I will. Is it one of the coolest things about tech transfer is that many of our faculty are striving to replicate nature. You know, nature has so many of the solutions to the problems that we're facing. And it is just such a fascinating process of kind of discovery to work out, you know, how is it that photosynthesis occurs and how can we make that into something that can benefit society in different ways? I think that fundamentally is, is kind of one of the driving reasons that uh, being involved in this area is so, is, is, is so fabulous. And I'm always I'm humbled every day in, in the work that I do in this area to, to see that occur. It's amazing. Yeah, I can uh, even even covering this from from the outside. It's it's quite a fascinating field. So I imagine being smack down in the middle of it and, and actually seeing these inventions come out in real time is, is is amazing. Yeah, absolutely. You've you've been in tech transfer for a while. You ran the office of technology management at Illinois for ten years before joining MIT. I imagine MIT being MIT was a big reason for for joining. But did you have any other reasons? And, and what's the experience been like so far? So what the experience has been like so far, as I just mentioned, I mean, it's just a privilege. It's a privilege to, to work at MIT with all of the people, to have the support of the university and what we do. It is quite inspirational, as I mentioned. 
and to work with the licensing office staff and others around us who are completely committed to to doing what we're here for, which is getting technologies into the hands of those who can develop them and, and, and have impact in the world. What convinced me to join MIT? University of Illinois was a fabulous, and in fact, it put me on the road to where I am at the moment, and I can't ever thank the, the organization and the leadership there enough for the, the opportunity they gave me, including sponsoring my H-1 visa, which is no small order. It didn't take much to convince me to join MIT. It was timely. I felt as though I had done not everything I could, but I felt as though I was leaving uh, the, the tech transfer office at Illinois in a fairly good space and the incoming leadership there was well ready to to do that. And so I've always found in life that when you're presented with a fork in the road, you know, even if it's daunting, which it was, it was one of the most daunting things I did to actually even interview because as you probably know, females often feel as though they're imposters. And uh, walking, although I was potentially going to be replacing, you know, a legend, Leekta Nelson, it was uh, quite, it wasn't hard to decide to interview in itself. But when it came to it, it was one of the most challenging things I'd ever done. And then when I was offered the position, I then had to work out which path am I going to take to take on this well-established office. And that in itself was quite overwhelming at times. But um, I was ready for that challenge, and that's probably why I, uh, I, as I said, it was not about convincing. It was about making sure I was ready and capable and uh, took this uh, journey um, with the support of my family, my wife, and at the time, a young daughter, who's now 13. And uh, I had all of that support to do that, and so we moved here in 2016. Amazing. I mean, even just going by the numbers that you mentioned earlier, you've, I, th- I think you've You've really done it justice, and and as you said, Lita Nelson was was a bit of a legend, so it's it's big shoes to fill. But um, yeah, I think from right. Well, I I will say I will kind of say I don't think the numbers are anything to do with me. I mean, it, I think the the numbers are a function of where we're at and the work of our licensing officers and patent team and finance team and compliance team and everybody in the office who works to engage with the faculty, um, I am hoping just that I am steering and providing inspiration, leadership and motivation to everybody who works in the TLO and that the M- MIT feels supported by our office in a, in a constructive way. At the same time as dealing with the challenges it faces at the moment, whether it's COVID-19, working from home, budget constraints, making sure that people are well served in the jobs that they're doing they still have goals and professional development those are not small things and we need to keep our eyes on those as well so again I don't think I can take any credit for the numbers we have a a huge momentum but I do want to make sure that in each and every day the staff that I work with feel supported and motivated to continue the same. Spoken like a true leader (laughs) you've obviously been in, in, in tech transfer for a while have you seen any notable changes during your career in in tech transfer? It's such an interesting question because there's a couple of ways I could answer it. One is just the drive, and this is across the world, I think, to to see and improve on the number of female inventors engaging with tech transfer offices. And my colleague, uh, Washington, St. Louis, and and, uh, Northwestern in particular, have done some great jobs with great programs, and it's 
well supported by USPTO and the Autumn, the Association of University Tech Managers. And, and so that has been something that I, it's been pleased, I've been pleased to see. I would like to see a greater representation of under, underrepresented minorities and black people in the leadership of tech transfer. I think we probably are not a diverse enough group. But another thing is that I've seen, and I think everybody has seen, I'll say the switch to something tech transfer plus. So tech transfer offices typically are filled with individuals who have some business, legal, IP experience. And what what we have seen is that they have now become the hub for other things other than just, I'll call it pure tech transfer. And to clarify, I, I see MIT as a pure tech transfer office. We are doing everything associated with receipt of inventions and getting them evaluated, assessed, protected, and then working on negotiations and management of licenses and making sure that we're doing right by our joint owners and our faculty, et cetera, et cetera. But this, and we are surrounded by a community, as I said at the beginning, of VCs and incubators and accelerators and mentors and all sorts of things. Other places aren't. And often now you've seen the change of tech transfer offices from that pure function to that multi-purpose function. They have become the center for business development expertise, for assistance in writing for federal grants across here, SBIR, STTRs in particular. They have become the place where leadership for an incubator or accelerator is sought. So they have become this multifaceted tech transfer plus, I'm making that term up, for a community, not just a university community, sometimes for their regional community or even their state community. The work that Orrin Herkowitz at uh, Columbia has done for New York is quite amazing in, in building some great accelerator programs. And so, and that means it, it's a different, it becomes a different sort of organization. It, you know, it, it has many, many talents and it can assist. Now, that's, that's as long as you are hiring to make sure you have the right sort of people and that the same people, the 10 people or 20 people you've got in your office aren't expected to do all of these things and continue to do the pure tech transfer. Because behind that curtain, there's a lot of work that goes into maintaining portfolios of IP, et cetera. But that's, I think, the most significant change I've seen. And I think as people look at their forward-looking strategies, they're trying to work out what it is they want to be in the future or what it is their university wants them to be and how they can assist in economic development or commercialization or creation of jobs or whatever the regional economic development strategy might be. You, you said earlier you, you have a lot of jobs at, at, at MIT. Another one, you, you're also a member of 10U, which is the Transatlantic Collaboration to Exchange Best Practices. You're due to visit the UK in January, I think, on the invitation of Tony Raven over at Cambridge. Can you tell me a bit more about 10U and how that's helping the TLO do its work? Yeah, so this is something that is in the, I'll say, early stages in terms of impact. But when I became director of the office at MIT, I had known Tony for some years and I knew that they had this group called 6U. So he and I had been discussing and, you know, always wanted to take advantage of relationships and see how we can enhance each other's impact. We discussed ways in which we could expand that cross-ocean to include initially MIT and Stanford, and then uh, he wisely suggested also some other universities in the in, 
in Europe, and that included Leuven. So we've got, I think, MIT, Leuven, Oxford, Edinburgh, Stanford, Imperial College, Columbia, we've brought them in, Cambridge, Manchester, and UCL in London. And the idea was there's many groups that get together to kind of share best practices, as you said, was just to begin to compare and contrast and learn from each other about policy impact, government impact, ways in which we're dealing things, and then other ways that we could enhance each of our learnings across, I would say, cultural boundaries. We also, because obviously this needed some financial support, engaged with NIST across here. Oh gosh, I'm going to forget the acronym from NIST, National Institute of Science and Technology, which is under the Department of Commerce. I'm pretty sure I've got that wrong, but it's led by Walt Copan and Research England. So they they too have joined in order to kind of give us an enhanced boost with regard to being able to structure the infrastructure. And the idea truly is to see ways in which we can engage cross cross borders. And uh, the sorts of things I mentioned are, are the sorts of things we're looking at. But this is fairly early days. We've got regular meetings. We're hoping that some of them in the future will be in person. And we're going to run agendas that allow us to integrate across offices as well as we can through, if possible, future staff exchange programs as well. Amazing. I think um, I've been talking to the guys at Cambridge as well. So hopefully at the end of January, if you are in the UK, if not, I'll have to be Zoom, but hopefully we'll, we can check in and, and talk some more about 10U then. As a final question, an open-ended question, is there anything that we haven't talked about yet that um, you are dying for the world to know? <laughs> I, I don't think so. I mean, I appreciate the, the platform to be able to uh, thank all of the people that work with me for uh, giving me the opportunity, but giving us all the opportunity to get MIT technologies into the marketplace and to also share with others what we consider to be best practices, but also learn from them. And that's a fabulous thing about tech transfer is that we, every, you know, you've seen one technology, you've seen one technology, it's a learning it's a learning moment every day, and uh, that, that's what makes it probably the best job in the world. I think those are, uh, those are good closing words. It's been an honour having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time out of your busy day joining us. And um, yeah, I'll see you on September 29th at the Digital Forum for our roundtable then. I look forward to it. Thank you so much again. Thank you. Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.